While much of the world has shifted to kind of accepting and managing COVID in their communities, the most populous country on earth has doggedly pursued a zero COVID strategy. And for a long time, it really seemed to be working. But that may be coming to an end. Let's turn to China now. It has reported its highest ever daily number of COVID infections. More than 31,000 new cases were recorded for Wednesday. Earlier this year, China experienced a big surge in COVID cases. From about June, things settled down. And then around October, another surge. More lockdowns at short notice, sometimes for unknown periods of time. Apartment complexes were bolted up with people inside. And tragedies ensued. A bus carrying residents of Guiyang was taking them to a COVID-19 quarantine facility, a remote facility based very far away, and the bus crashed in the middle of the night. 27 people were killed. The unrest triggered by a deadly fire in Urumqi in China's western Xinjiang region last Thursday. Two surviving adult children of Kamar Han speak to me from Turkey. They say their loved ones were trapped in the building by COVID measures. After nearly three years, many Chinese people have had enough. Tonight, acts of defiance not seen in a generation. Massive protests spreading across China, the largest since Tiananmen Square. Thousands of people risking their own safety, marching in the streets of Shanghai and the capital, Beijing. I'm Emil Donovan, and today on The Detail, demonstrations in China of a scale, scope and diversity not seen in decades. So why now? What has China's COVID response been, and how has it led to this? How are these demonstrations being dealt with? And where to from here? Lisa Movius is a journalist based in Shanghai. I spoke to her last Thursday. Protests kicked off really late on Saturday night, so after midnight, technically Sunday morning. And it was largely the spontaneous kids who were out clubbing, streaming into this popular neighborhood um, at this intersection that is called uh, Wulamuchi Lu. They chant, Xi Jinping, step down. An extraordinary show of defiance in China. In Shanghai, they chant for freedom, democracy, and end to COVID lockdowns. Even targeting the Communist Party and the Supreme Leader himself. Um, which is uh, Mandarin for Urumuchi, the capital city of Xinjiang, which is where this horrible fire happened last week, where uh, 10 people who were locked into their building due to the uh, COVID lockdown uh, died, died in the fire. Authorities have said the building's residents had been able to go downstairs. But videos shared on social media led many to believe that residents could not escape in time because the building was partially locked down. There have been lockdown protests throughout the year, uh, protests as well as riots. Uh, the Shanghai one, to be clear, was like a very um, restrained protest on the on the protesters' part. The police were not so restrained. Uh, but, you know, people have been fighting back against lockdowns, knocking over their barricades, putting up some kind of fight, but very sporadically. 
uh, a few weeks ago, first in Zhengzhou, where the Foxconn factory is, the the factories, the factory workers started really pushing back and, you know, actually, actually quite rioting and smashing up the barricades and the testing booths and breaking out. They were locked in their dormitories and breaking out and just like streaming out of the city. This is very unusual in China. A police truck among the targets. The frustration of the fed up spilling over. And that's been going on for a little while. Uh, also in Guangzhou, there's been uh, periodic uh, riots against the lockdown measures on a smaller scale. But what really happened, what really changed is because of this fire and everyone is so sad and horrified that this would happen. But it especially resonates here in Shanghai because uh, while Ulamushi had a much longer 100-day lockdown, we had a similar 60-day lockdown this spring. And so what happened in, in Ulamushi with the fire could absolutely have happened to anyone here. And we spent those those two months terrified that our buildings would catch on fire and we wouldn't be able to get out of them because in many cases our doors were bolted. We were locked into our apartment units. So so it's something that really, really hits a nerve here after you know a year of really stringent uh, measures. Uh, so it started in Shanghai that night, and then more and more uh, the next day, Beijing started doing similar protests around the um, popular Liangwahe, the uh, Liangma River area, which is a very trendy, um, like sporting and dining and picnicking uh, area in Beijing. And, you know, other cities, I think it's like 19 cities was the count I saw, and also like over 70 or 80 universities have had uh Protests, similar protests and have holding up these white papers to sort of signify the inability to say anything at, because censorship has gotten so bad in China. Gee, that's, that's, that's remarkable when you lay it all out like that. But maybe at this stage we should sort of uh, go back and establish some context here. While much of the rest of the world has returned to some semblance of normal life and abandoned lockdowns as a tool for controlling COVID and sort of accepted the presence of COVID... Uh, many of these countries carrying high death tolls and very bruised economies. China has not followed that route, has it? It has not. It has very much doubled down, not just on you know COVID prevention, having zero tolerance of COVID, but it's also doubled down on using the you know emergency measures that were used in early 2020 against original the original version of COVID and against Delta, because you know of course the they were afraid to let people stay at home and quarantine at home if they were sick because you might just die at home, infect your whole family. But of course, that's not really a risk with Omicron. But they're still insisting that anyone who is infected go to these horrific uh, Fang Song uh, facilities where it's like thousands of people in one huge converted exhibition center or stadium. And like the lights are on 24 hours. There's not enough bathrooms. There's not enough food. It really is like a prison camp. This woman's door was kicked in by police when she refused to go to quarantine. And so, of course, everyone's terrified of catching COVID and being taken to one of these things. You know, it's it's not a it's not a measure that should be adapted for long term, but that's exactly what they're doing. The people who are the enforcers at the low level, they have every motivation to be overly zealous and to overly enforce the rules, which are themselves already quite strict. But then on the local level, they're enforced even stricter because people want to, you know, there's no penalty for being too strict, but there is a penalty for being not strict enough. Mm. It's it's very interesting drawing contrasts at least between China's strategy this year anyway and uh, in a country like New Zealand, which initially pursued similarly pursued a zero COVID strategy. It's probably mm. fair to characterise New Zealand's strategy as being 
we will continue to use lockdowns as a tool where cases emerge and we will lock down localised areas. But in the background of that, Mm -hmm. we are going to do a great big massive vaccination drive. And when we get to a certain point in the vaccination drive, we are going to open up. And we are accepting that there are going to be deaths and that there's going to be big strain on hospitals. But you simply cannot keep using lockdowns as a tool to pursue a zero COVID strategy. There has to be a sort of end point. Right. As I, as I mentioned, it feels like China has just taken the emergency mode and made it permanent rather than having some kind of off-ramp, um, like eventual solution uh, through vaccines and uh, reopening. You know, I think a lot of people here really wish that China would follow the New Zealand model and, you know, find a way to get to get out of this because of uh, via vaccines. There's two issues with vaccines. The smaller one is that China has refused to import vaccines. It insists on using its own domestically manufactured ones. I mean, look, I'm just going to say it's generally assumed that the Chinese vaccine is not as good as the mRNA and the other stuff on the market uh, elsewhere. Why would China or not accept the vaccines that could actually help this phase two, as you're talking about? I don't think pride is a matter in this whole uh, situation. Uh, China has developed its own unique proprietary vaccines. Cooperation with other countries to share other vaccines will be very helpful to China. I hope this will be done on a reciprocal basis. And on the other hand, also please keep in mind, the virus keeps changing Mm -hmm. and no vaccine is perfect. It's hard to say how ineffective or effective they are because the testing has been kind of inconsistent on them. The other issue, the biggest issue is that they haven't been that pushy about vaccines. So while the overall vaccine rate is pretty high, if you take out elderly people, it gets lower and lower. Um, the older you get, the more reluctance you have. And I think that's because of, you know, a little bit like in the West, older people who are like more distrustful of the government and more distrustful of science tend to think that, you know, tend to believe conspiracy theories about what the vaccine might do to you. You know, the one going around I heard lately is that the vaccines make you lose all your hair. Um, I guess if you're 80, maybe really value those hairs. (laughs) The government has been really reluctant to, you know, force vaccines on to like force people to have vaccines instead of just having really strong pressure on them. And so they've gotten they've hit this wall about of this like low vaccine rate for older people. And so, I mean, in terms of, you know, looking at that strategy, it's very easy for us in New Zealand to look at that strategy and say, well, that's um, that sounds pretty draconian. But I suppose if the end goal is to keep COVID to a minimum, the strategy that China chose seems to be working very effectively for a long time, up until sort of the beginning of this year, the sort of February, March, April period. There was quite a spike in COVID cases at that stage, wasn't there, Lisa? Right, right. I'm glad you bring that up, Emil, because people tend to look at like, oh, China's zero COVID. It's been like terrible for the whole three years. But actually, from the middle of 2020, once the original outbreak was under control and through last year, things were, you know, really quite open and operational because they were able to sort of squish things off at the source and keep them from spreading. The difference, of course, is from the beginning of this year, we've had the very contagious Omicron variety uh, that everyone is so familiar with. And it's really, really hard to stop that through these kinds of measures. Right. And so is that what we're seeing now? It's just sort of a a seasonal thing? Because as I said, there was a spike in sort of um, from March to about May, and then things cooled off in China Mm -hmm. for quite some time. And now over the past month or so, we're again seeing an even more dramatic spike than earlier this year, aren't we? 
Correct. It's it sort of started off. It was very sporadic in January and February, uh, but after like people came back from their Chinese New Year travels in uh, February, then of course people caught it on the road and spread it on the road, and you know there are increasingly spikes everywhere uh, from March through May, and of course here in Shanghai we had a sort of soft lockdown, like these rolling lockdowns, like a you know. Four days was the longest one, but others were like, you know, 48 hours per building through March. And, you know, that was actually still pretty livable. You could order food. Um, you could go out once a day, like go for a walk while you got your PCR test. It wasn't too draconian. But then the uh, April lockdown, they told us it was going to be four days and it turned into 60 days. We weren't allowed to order food. Um, in many cases, we weren't allowed to even leave our apartments at all, uh, depending on the building you were in and uh, what kind of rules they enforced. So, you know, that was that was very very intense, and of course the cases really spiked in Shanghai. They got it back down over the summertime, and then October holiday, October first is the the founding of the PRC, and there's a week long holiday. Everyone went traveling, and guess what? We had a whole you know spate of new cases, and that's continued to spread all over the country. Sam Suchdeva covers foreign affairs and trade for Newsroom. He also is writing a book about China, which is coming out next year. There are no good options, really, um, because if you maintain the course, keep the these TV restrictions in place, uh, you know, does this public discontent curdle more? Do you get more and more people coming into the streets? Does this lead to you know something closer to the Arab Spring or pro democracy protests we've seen in other countries? Um, on the other hand, you backtrack, and as you say, that that might be a sign of weakness. But also, loosening of COVID restrictions means that China would have to confront the same problems that that we did, and that every country has. Is that once you open up, you are going to have a wave of new infections, you're going to have a wave of hospitalizations, and and a wave of deaths, and that that as well could um, be pretty damaging, I think, to the the CCP's, uh, you know, control if there is a sense that they've kind of failed and you, you have a, an outbreak of, of illness and death. Back to Lisa Movius. Is there a strong central message or, or demand here on behalf of the protesters and the demonstrators? Or are these more protests that are motivated by, you know, by discontent than look, like looking for a tangible goal kind of thing, to your understanding? There really is a there really is a range, and of course it's it's hard to say because you can't like do a survey of all the protesters because you know they have to keep their identities um, quiet. You can't like go and ask like a hundred of them, you know, what are you fighting for, and then figure out what the supports are for. Um, what I observed that first night is that you know they're all you know new to protesting, and people were really kind of struggling to figure out what do we shout? We don't know. <laughs> people be like, yeah, or be like, eh, we're not feeling it. Um, so like you would see like what the shouts like got the most the crowd most going and invariably it was the things about you know the general things of no more lockdowns plus um, we just want more freedom we want freedom of the press we want freedom of the arts we want freedom of culture um, no more censorship uh, you know the much reported you know the, the headlines of everything is the shouting of down with Xi Jinping and down with the CCP. <laughs> When those were shouted, I, I've got to say it was maybe half the crowd joined in and half the crowd was like, eh, that's maybe a little too far. <laughs> you know, we we just want like to go back to our manageable level of autocracy that we had five years ago. Um, you know, that's acceptable. Uh, you know, they also realized that the 
you know, the cost of pressing for regime change is much higher than just pressing for like the end of zero COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, it was very interesting because I actually heard like, you know, discussions and actual arguments, especially like the younger people, like the young men who are very angry and just like shouting for everything and, you know, F your mother or F your father. Uh, kinds of things. We're getting in arguments with these older people. We're just like, we are here to mourn the victims of the fire and we don't want to politicize this. And let's just like, you know, keep this within certain parameters. And so those two factions would get in these heated arguments until, you know, something new started shouting or singing and that got drowned out. I think certainly both in terms of the, the, the breadth of it, as I say, the fact that you've got in multiple cities, Shanghai, uh, Urumqi and, and Xinjiang and, and Beijing as well, I believe. Um, so, you know, multiple cities at, at the same time or very close to one another. There's a degree of, of sort of not, not coordination, but certainly awareness, I think, of what is going on in other cities. And it's also the target of the, the um, protesters. So this is very explicitly about the CCP, Xi Jinping, and, and the sort of central government's approach to COVID. There's a bit more permission space, so to speak, I think, when it, when it comes to protests aimed at local authorities and local decisions. The Chinese government is a little bit more understanding of letting those, those things run. It's sort of, I guess, a chance to have your population vent without losing control of the you know the the central narrative so the fact that it's as i say aimed at a very high level the very highest reaches of of chinese government is what marks us out as as is very unusual it's being described by some as the white paper or a4 revolution after demonstrators held sheets of blank paper they're protesting against censorship and the movement has been building by the day. It's always interesting with protests um, to observe the mode of protest or the, the chief images or symbols in a protest and what they say on a wider kind of level. And one of the things I've found fascinating about this has been the white sheets of paper. I wonder whether you can explain those. Right. So, I mean, the white sheets and you also see a lot of 404. 404 is what comes up when something's been censored from the Chinese Internet. Mm. Things get so censored so quickly if you post them or um, try and share them. And so everyone either gets censored or they're just so used to self-censoring. They don't post anything controversial because they're afraid they'll get called into by the police or they'll get you know, their accounts suspended. And, of course, in China, you use WeChat, you use it to pay, you use it to call a taxi, you use it to talk to all your friends. So if you lose your WeChat account, it's like you've been cut off from society. Uh, so people are always afraid of that. Um, so they self-censor quite a bit. So the white papers are a stand-in for how much self-censoring people have had to do in this atmosphere of really extreme censorship. On the ground, the first night, the police were actually quite restrained at first. Um, they just tried to dispel the crowd without actually being too aggressive. And they just tried to like break up the groups and get everyone to go home. And they only started arresting people around 5 a.m. with the final scragglers. But the next day, they were just really aggressively shoving the crowds and picking people off one by one, beating them and taking them away. That seems to have been the new uh, technique in Beijing as well. So that's on the ground. It's been very quickly suppressed. And now, like, the street of uh, Wulamuchi Road is now just, like, packed with police cars and barricades. You know, the irony is that this just makes us remember all the barricades that went up during our lockdown. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah, it just, like, sort of feels like a repeat of that, but for a different reason. And we're afraid they're going to lock us up to- all down just for the uh, protests. On the national level, on the official level, though, it's been really, really quiet. 
Um, there's been no response to them from the central government. A few like proxies of the government have mouthed off on, on Twitter, uh, which is banned in China, uh, that you know the protests are no big deal. And a few, I think, smaller agencies have made some um, references to them, but very passingly. Lisa, what's it been like from your perspective? I mean, you've you've lived in in China for a long time. How has it been from your perspective as a a media figure in China reporting on what's happening here? Well, I am a foreign reporter. I'm accredited with a J visa. And normally that means that we're allowed to move freely. We're supposed to be protected and respected. Uh, But already one of my colleagues was, you know, pulled out of the crowd and beaten up and arrested. so that it seems like that our normal protections are being suspended because the government is so afraid of um, afraid of this kind of pushback. It's it's really unlike anything I've seen before, and it's really hard to know what will what will happen, uh, you know, in the next in the coming weeks and months in response to this. Well, yeah, like I was going to ask that, you know, do, do you get the sense um, that that the authorities here are? you know, responding or willing to engage with the protests and the demonstrations, or are they just sort of, we make the rules here, you have to abide by them, it's that simple? It, it's definitely the latter. There is, this is has long been a society, a government that just is like, is very, um, you know, it's a nanny state. It's like, do what we say, it's for your own good. Um, there's no pushback allowed. And so, yeah, there has been no, as I said, there's been no official response. There's been zero actual engagement. There just has been a very heavy-handed crackdown and arrest. And, you know, since then, I'm sure you've seen the the reports of people going on those streets, on have their phones um, grabbed and checked. And if they have pictures of the protests, they get deleted. And meanwhile, police have been going car to car in the subways and checking people's phones for foreign social media apps that they could use to share these things abroad. So it's it's feeling very, very draconian. And this is definitely in my 20 years of China, I've never seen anything like this. I mean, the protests are remarkable and the crackdown is remarkable. And it's really unlike anything I've seen before. And it is it is pretty scary. I think the fear we all have is that the government is going to double down and it's just like try and lock us down again. I think if they lock down Shanghai, people are going to go from protesting to rioting and it's going to be a much more mass scale because, you know, we've been through already been through 60 days of this. And in Shanghai, at least and anywhere else, it's been through hard lockdown. Like people have been through so much that it's just they're at the very end of their rope and there's really you know they're out of uh, completely out of f's to give and they feel like they've lost so much that you know any kind of crackdown i think if they really really aggressively continue to crack down and they keep these measures in place and if they lock people down here again it's just the pushback is going to get much stronger but again i don't also don't see this government as being a very yielding one so it really is a you know two rocks colliding i suppose Late last week, authorities in a number of major Chinese cities announced the easing of some COVID restrictions. And there have been signs that a bigger shift could be in the wings too, with the country's vice premier saying China was facing a new situation. Yet any move away from the zero COVID strategy will carry consequences. A peer-reviewed study in the May edition of the Nature Medicine Journal suggested as many as 1.6 million people could die were China to abandon its policy. Hospitals would be under tremendous pressure. And in addition to that human cost, the economic impacts, both on China and countries that heavily rely on China, could get even worse than they already are. 
That's it for today. I'm Emile Donovan. The Detail is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Rangi Poek and produced by Sarah Robson. And thanks to Lisa Movius and Sam Suchdeva. Matewa. Matewa.